Pint Glass Football Podcast is presented by Better Edge, giving the edge back to the betters with no fee sports betting. At betteredge.com, you, not the books, set the price of betting lines so you can make bank with no VIG or sportsbook fees. Better Edge is available in 45 states for real money sports betting. Create an account and use code PGF for $10 on your first order. Play the game without getting played at betteredge.com. Welcome to the Pint Glass Football Podcast. This is Pint Glass Football. Drink beer, talk football. If you're new to the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Follow on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at PGF Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Fowler, and McKenzie Brewing is the official beer of Pint Glass Football. Follow them at McKenzie Brewing and McKenzieBrewing.com to check out their lineup of award-winning craft beers. Got a great show today, PGF Nation. Super Bowl Sunday is almost here. I can't believe it. We're going to break it down for you guys. We're going to make our predictions and betting picks. But first, we're going to recap the NFC and AFC championships. Tell you which Super Bowl that we think was the best ever. Tom Brady officially retires. Some new head coaches around the NFL. We're going to give our thoughts. We're going to give out the championship Sunday game balls and plenty more to cover as well on this big episode to finish season three, the final episode of season three. It's going to be a ton of fun. We've got a ton to get to, but joining me to do so as always, radio and podcast legend, my co-host Tyrone Powell. What is up, Ty? Nothing much. How you doing, man? Feeling pretty good as we get ready to walk into the bowl of all bowls. It's the Super Bowl season. February is here. Hope everybody's doing well. Man, Ty, I'll tell you what, man, it doesn't get much more fun than this. The playoffs have been amazing, maybe the best playoffs ever. I don't remember the last time that there was this many games that were so close, so competitive. We've had some overtime games. We've had a bunch of walk-off wins. We've had some come-from-behind wins. It's been incredible. I can't wait to jump into all of it. But, yeah, the Super Bowl is here absolutely awesome and like i said in the intro we're going to wrap up season three as we always do with the super bowl episode we will be back in april of course for the nfl draft coverage you know how much i love covering the draft we're going to have all that going for you guys then so definitely come back make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out when we do decide to come back in april with all the draft stuff but right now the focus is obviously super bowl sunday But we've got some other stuff to get to, Ty. I want to start with Tom Brady. He just recently made his retirement official. It leaked. Adam Schefter and some other guys leaked this info a little while ago. We kind of knew this was coming, but it's now official. The greatest of all time hangs it up. We could do a whole podcast, Ty, on Brady's accomplishments. So I don't want to go down the whole list of them, but some of the stuff that really stood out to me, most games started most regular season wins, the most passing yards and touchdowns in NFL history, the 10 Super Bowl appearances, seven Super Bowl titles, and 14 postseason game-winning drives, which is also the most ever. Ty, what are your thoughts on Tom Brady walking away from the game? It's almost to the point where I feel as the viewer, analyst, and fan of the sport, it's almost like we got spoiled to what we were seeing. After a while, it's like you don't want to see him retire. And now that it's happening, it's like 
wait a minute, we're watching a legend put the cleats up. So at the early portion of this career that took off out of Michigan coming into New England, and it's incredible to think that this guy had that much moxie to not only win three championships, to almost win one, lose two, and then bounce back and then win three more with that organization and leave and go to an organization immediately and pick up another one. It's like I just gave you the details of what this guy did, ultimately finishing on top. It's stunning what he's been able to do, especially with an empty cabinet majority of the time. The one time that he at least had some silverware or some china, they went 18 and 1. It's been incredible to see it. Um, I didn't want to see it happen this way with them on a loss. I like to see a lot of guys finish on the high side of the situation. But nevertheless, I, I mean, we were spoiled as people watching the golden era of like of the 90s, 2000s on. And uh, he survived all of it going through waiting his turn after being a six-round pick. And it, it's been a heck of a ride. And one of those underdog stories that turned into one of the ultimate stories ever. I, I could never under play or undersell where Brady meant to football, to the New England region, and also to the newfound fans of Tampa Bay, which I want to see what they look like next year. Yeah, it's really incredible, Ty. You almost can't even put it into words, but really well done by you. I love what you're saying there. Really well put. I could just go on and on about this guy, the greatest of all time, and it, he just has done everything. He checks every box. His staying power at the top was unbelievable. We're just never, ever, ever, and I feel confident saying this, we're never going to see another Tom Brady. He is truly one of one, not only the greatest quarterback ever, the best football player ever, arguably one of the greatest American athletes of all time, an unrivaled career, truly amazing. And yeah, he didn't go out on top as far as a winner. He didn't walk off with the Lombardi, but he did go out a winner in the sense that he led the league in passing yards and passing touchdowns his final year in the league, which is just amazing at the age of 44. Can't say enough about the guy. And now since 2020, Philip Rivers, Drew Brees, Eli Manning, and Ben Roethlisberger, all guys that I think will get into the Hall of Fame, they've all retired since 2020, and now Tom Brady joins that list. It really is the end of an era in the NFL. We got to kind of wait for his son to come out here and do what he did. You know, I think we got to wait about a good five years or four years for him to get to college and see what he can do in the league in the next eight or so. Um, but he's actually been at practices with his father in Tampa Bay. But again, I think the closest thing to him right now may be a Mahomes, maybe, or, or Burrow. The time frame of time that they can make something happen, and let's just say they could get a total of three, four, or five. And I feel like I'm pushing a big envelope for them to get that many done. But um, that's that's the ones that I can see at this point in time, unless some crazy athlete comes in the next 10 years and then goes crazy. But I don't see anybody fitting those shoes. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Ty. And as great as Mahomes, Burrow, all these young quarterbacks, the league is in good hands as far as that goes. But you're right. I just think those shoes are too big to fill. I don't see it happening. He's just has a career just unlike any other as far as the stats, the accolades, the championships, everything that goes with it. The guy was really just an unbelievable player. It's really sad to see him go, but also kind of cool in a way to see him leave Still being able to play, he didn't limp off into the sunset. He rode off with his head held high, knowing that he could still play at an elite level. Ty, but I said it in the intro, I want to jump into some of these coaching hires. I've had a few coaching hires since the last podcast episode. I wanted to get your thoughts on some of these guys. I want to start with the Giants. They hire Brian Dable, 
as their next head coach. He's been the offensive coordinator for the Bills since 2018. He gets a lot of credit for helping develop Josh Allen. He's got a lot of coaching experience as a coordinator under a lot of different great coaches. What do you make of this hire for the Giants? Um, it's a good pickup. I can't lie. The Giants actually went after a, a player, or excuse me, a coach, excuse me, that uh actually had good success in recent years in Buffalo. Uh, they have a good cavalry out there with the Bills, but this is going to be an uphill situation for him to turn around the Giants and what they have in the cupboard at this point in time and seeing what free agents they could pull in there and also what they could do within the draft. Yeah, I was a little surprised by the hire. I think it's a good fit. I'm with you. I think it's a good fit. But I was a little surprised. I thought Brian Flores was going to be the guy. It really felt like this was lining up for him to be the guy, a guy who's got proven head coaching experience. I thought he would have been a home run hire. I'm shocked that he hasn't been hired at this point. That's a whole nother story. But as far as the day will hire, you know, this is a guy who's got offensive coordinator experience for the Browns, Dolphins, and Chiefs as far as in the NFL. And he also was an offensive coordinator for one year at Alabama. He was an assistant with the New England Patriots from 2000 to 06. He's learned under some great head coaches like Nick Saban, Andy Reid, and Bill Belichick. He has a lot of experience for a first-time head coach. I think that's something that's got to be appealing for the Giants and their fans. And he teams up with former Bills executive Joe Schoen, who is now the Giants GM. So I think this fit makes a lot of sense. They definitely need somebody from the offensive side of the ball, it felt like. And maybe that's why Flores wasn't the guy, because he's more of a defensive-minded coach. The offense has been so putrid in New York for the last several years. I think they felt like that was something they just had to address, while the defense has actually been pretty good. They've been quietly better than most people realize. It's really just been the offense that can't get out of its own way. So it'll be really fascinating to see what they do with this staff and how things turn around for them. The next hire I want to touch on here, Ty, is Josh McDaniels. The Patriots' longtime offensive coordinator gets hired to be the, the next Raiders head coach. What is your thoughts on McDaniels getting a second chance here as a head coach in the NFL? He wasn't successful going to Denver, I think, because he was stuck with Tebow at that point in time and knew that his quarterback wasn't like a Brady at that point in time. He left because it was pressure on him to try to turn that organization around. Um, he goes back to New England. They have success. He gets more jewelry to put in the cupboard. The Colts come after him, and he doesn't even introduce himself at the press conference. I, as no organization, trust McDaniels. He's getting an opportunity before coaches that deserve a better shot than him. Um, I get it that he's with Belichick. He's a part of the Belichick tree. There's not too many coaches that have left that tree that have had success, let alone his resume on how he's done organizations in short periods of time, and let alone the one that he did with the Colts and the way that he did them so dirty at that point in time. And he's getting a job in Las Vegas, where you know that's one of my favorite cities in the world, and that's an ideal spot for a lot of coaches to go coach. And they're up and coming at this point in time, but they still got a lot of stuff to turn around, in which I'm partially biased. I'm not a Raider fan by any means, but there's a guy, Rich Basakia. I hope I'm not butchering his name. He's from Connecticut. He's like a couple minutes away from my town that the whole organization loves. They didn't even want to bring him back. So you don't want to bring him back. He just already settled for what was coming out of New England, and let's roll with that, and let's make this the Las Vegas Patriots. So you know that's the way that they're going to try to implement. So I'm not I'm not too thrilled about it. I understand his resume. I understand what he brings to the table. But the way that he's left his last two situations is, is porous, and he should not get that recommendation over other guys that are trying to chase that situation. 
you pointed out something, Ty, that I'm glad you did. Passing on Rich Basaccia, I thought was a little bit shocking. He did such a good job coming in as an interim head coach. The first time ever that an interim head coach takes over a job midseason and gets their team to the playoffs. No one had ever done that prior to him. The team had so many things going on, so many things going against them. He handled it really, really well. It seems like the players played really hard for him. I thought he showed great leadership and really deserved to have a shot. As far as Josh McDaniels, you're right. This is a guy who failed as the head coach of the Broncos, going 11-17 and 17 as the head coach in Denver. He was in over his head at the time. He was a young head coach, inexperienced. It was over a decade ago. It's hard to believe it was that long ago. It kind of reminds me of Lane Kiffin, a guy who got some really high-profile head coaching jobs when he was young, and he wasn't quite ready for those has now turned into a very good college football head coach after gaining more experience, going back and being a coordinator, learning some more things, gaining that knowledge to become a better head coach at the college football level. Josh McDaniels went back to the Patriots and got more experience under his belt, several more years of of coordinator experience. I think that will prepare him more for this job opportunity, but I'm with you. I think there could have been possibly some better candidates out there. I hated the way he handled the situation in Indianapolis. I thought that that was embarrassing. This is a guy who's a very good X's and O's coach. He has a lot of experience as a coordinator, but the head coaching role for an NFL team is definitely different than just being a good coordinator. We've seen tons of coordinators fail when they become head coaches because there's a lot more to that job than people realize. And this team is coming off one of its most successful seasons in a long time. I'll be curious to see how this plays out, but I want to jump to the Chicago Bears hiring Matt Eberflus. He becomes the Bears head coach after being a really good defensive coordinator for the Colts, but he's only been an NFL coordinator for about four years. What did you make of this hire? Um, another questionable move. Uh, the situation isn't their defense in Chicago. They need somebody to help that offense out. I don't think this is a head coach that helps Fields out at this point in time because I don't think Andy Dalton is the guy behind him to put the pressure. So it's kind of like let Fields go through this situation while their offense is in question. I mean, Komet uh, being the interesting tight end has done work. Their running game is efficient, but the rest of the receiving core has to come through on a consistent basis, not spotty play. This is a situation where this is a pass-first league. So if they can't get somebody to come in here and kind of implement a passing system that could help in one of the biggest throwing divisions in the North, this could be troublesome if they're just focused on the defensive side of the ball. The defense is okay, let alone what do they do with Khalil Mack after being injured and out. So their defense isn't the issue. I don't know if that's what Chicago needs at this point in time. They need somebody to help them score points on more than a 24-point-per-game basis for them to be threats. Their defense is already there. So this is why I'm bothered by that move as well. Yeah, you took the words completely out of my mouth. I agree with you on all counts. All of his experience is on defense. If you look at his track record, everywhere he's coached, he's been a defensive guy first. And with a young quarterback in Justin Fields that you just touched on, he still needs to develop. He's not a finished product. He flashed some talent. But he needs to develop. He needs an offensive mind. He needs some offensive structure. This is really not the guy for that. 
throw in the fact that, like you pointed out, he only has four years of coordinator experience as well. So you've got a guy who's got limited experience, and he virtually has no experience with the offensive side of the ball. To me, this is a big red flag. I was not a fan of this hire at all. The last coaching hire that I want to touch on here was the Denver Broncos hiring Nathaniel Hackett, the offensive coordinator for the Green Bay Packers. To me, this just feels like a Hail Mary attempt to land Aaron Rodgers. It might be a good hire, but I don't really know a ton about Nathaniel Hackett. I liked Green Bay's offensive play calling for the most part, but I really don't like the optics of this hire. I, I agree with you 100%. I think that this was more or less a scream for some instant offense to come help them out because they struggled at the quarterback position. They really couldn't get the consistent play out of Teddy Bridgewater, and Locke is not the guy that they thought that they were getting out of the draft. If Aaron Rodgers doesn't come there, they're in trouble with a guy that's actually helped the, I want to say, team or offensive regime, if you will, work. But this is a different situation while they're in the middle of Colorado with a bunch of youth, especially trying for them to get the score points up against the likes of the Chargers who are up and coming, the Raiders who are up and coming, and the Chiefs that own the division. So if Rodgers doesn't come, it doesn't change anything other than that you brought a Packers face into this organization and I don't think it changes much for the Broncos organization but we will see hopefully they could get Rodgers to give them two to three years if he does come but if he doesn't they're still stuck in a situation they're going to have to approach the draft to get a quarterback or get a free agent quarterback that might not be as good as Teddy Bridgewater yeah it, it really feels like a desperate situation there with that hire and they're definitely at the bottom of this division looking up at the rest of this division who all have above average or budding superstar quarterbacks. So it's going to be an issue for them for sure. They're going to have to get that position figured out, and it'll be fascinating to see. That'll be something to touch in the offseason. But, Ty, I want to jump into these championship games. We had two awesome championship games to lead into this Super Bowl. I want to start with the AFC Championship, Chiefs-Bengals. The Bengals get the big win, as we know, 27-24. We both took the Bengals plus 6.5 in this game. The Chiefs were heavy Super Bowl favorites going into this game, and they were seven-point favorites over the Bengals before kickoff. KC blows that big 21-3 lead and also a 21-10 lead with five seconds left at the Bengals' one-yard line. Mahomes throws to Tyree Kill. Behind the line of scrimmage, he gets tackled, and the Bengals grab all the momentum. What were your thoughts on this crazy comeback by the Bengals? There was something that I spoke with one of my uh, co-workers about, and I never looked at it like this until he actually broke it down. I was in the past three seasons picking on Kyle Shanahan. Looking at Andy Reid's situation, he said, Andy Reid has blown more leads than people think of. And I started thinking about it, and I was like, you're not lying. Now, looking at the situation, one thing I've learned about the podcasting that I've done, in which one of my co-hosts would always say, don't always try to be the smartest guy in the room. And Andy Reid tried to be the smartest guy in the room at the one-yard line, forcing passes where one pass should have been the play that they've been running for the past four years, the shovel pass to Travis Kelsey, which is basically a run play and a touchdown. They don't do this at the one. Um, The second situation is McKinnon is averaging five yards or better a carry at the one and Cincinnati's defense is struggling against the run, and you're at the one, and you didn't give him the ball 
Like that's that's questionable. And three, that, that play that he threw to Trav uh to Tyreek Hill when Tyreek was in motion and everybody on defense is following him, he runs a four two. You think people aren't ready for him to catch the ball? Like whatever. And we try to be smart. It burned them. They went to the halftime. The momentum is in Cincinnati's locker room. I don't care what people say, if it's twenty one to ten or not, they come out, the momentum is still there, they score quick, they make it a game as a one possession game, no matter how that score goes, and we know how that, that broke down and then that last drive where they kicked the field goal before the end of regulation, he tries to get smart again. But more or less, this was him getting smart. And Mahomes is kind of sugaring the situation as well, trying to be extra creative. If he'd have lost that fumble, people would have been poo-pooing Patrick Mahomes Jr. and wondering why Andy Reid is up to some horrible play calling at this point in time. Or Eric Bieniemy. however we look at it. Either one of them, they're not escaping the situation. They had to settle for the field goal. Field goal happens, they come out, they get the ball, and here goes Mahomes playing questionable ball all again. There's a lot of questions that Mahomes need to face. I wish it was me asking him questions if I was close to Missouri, but it's not. It's interesting. And Andy Reid deserves more scrutiny, too. Both of them need some questions to answer. That was the first thing that I thought of was the momentum. The momentum swing was huge. The Bengals went into the half feeling fired up, feeling alive, feeling like they had a chance, whereas if the Chiefs just kicked a field goal there. You go up 14 at half, and you go into the half feeling good up two touchdowns. That made no sense to me. We've talked about the analytics on this show. We've talked about the analytics revolution that we've seen happen throughout football, and all these coaches continuing to go for it in the red zone instead of kicking field goals. Look at the team that kicked the most field goals in the playoffs. It's been the Bengals. They've been kicking a ton of field goals. They kicked field goals early in this game when they were down. They didn't try to force the issue. They just took the points, and they chipped away at the lead, and they got back and ended up winning this game. It's just old school football versus this new way of thinking. Now, I'm not saying there's never a good time to go for it, but that was not one of them. When you've got the lead and you've got the momentum, just kick and take the three points, take a bigger lead at the half. It made no sense to me. And you're right. Andy Reid definitely needs to be questioned for that. Eric Bieniemy, the play calling, I didn't like it at all. I really didn't, and I can't agree with you more, Ty. The Bengals ended up tying an AFC championship game record for the largest comeback ever. They were down 18 points at one point in this game, and you touched on Patrick Mahomes. Look, this guy is great. We all know he's going to have a gold jacket someday. I'm not trying to beat up on this guy, but we've seen now throughout this season, and throughout stretches of his career, this is a guy who can be a little bit streaky at times. They were red hot in the first half, and in the second half, when the Bengals grabbed the momentum, Mahomes just really fell apart in the second half. He didn't play like the guy that we've seen earlier in the game. He had two interceptions. He went 8 for 18 for only 55 yards in the second half. The Bengals completely shut them down. All they gave up was a field goal in the second half in overtime. And what's shocking to me more than anything is that the Kansas City defense played a great game. They really kept Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase mostly in check throughout this game. And they still blew that big lead. This was the tale of two halves. The Bengals continue to be a great second half team. And that comes from coaching and leadership. Two things that I don't think the Bengals are getting enough credit for. I actually have to put a lot of this on Mahomes because it's like you have to be able to go shot for shot with a guy that's basically in his rookie season right now. Uh, I can't really say Burrow's in his second season because he got hurt last year. And uh, knowing how he's, you shouldn't take him lightly. 
He can make plays on the run, and he's been showing it since he got out of college up until this point in time. You got to be able to put him in the dirt. If you're ready to get championships, if you're ready to be that next GOAT, you have to win these games. Right now, you're putting yourself in a situation where you lose. Burrow can end up picking up a championship and threaten to be the best guy in the AFC or one of the better quarterbacks in the, in the NFL. Um, you're supposed to nail this shut, and this actually puts questions in front of you at this point in time, even though everybody's enamored with your arm. Yeah, you're right. You're definitely right. They've got to be held accountable for this. This was a big-time collapse, and I thought you made a great point about Shanahan and Andy Reid and the optics and how we view the two coaches. And speaking of Kyle Shanahan, I want to shift to the NFC Championship game. The Rams take care of the rival 49ers 20-17. to You took the Rams to win. I took the 49ers plus three and a half, so we both went on those picks. The 49ers got to this game led by their running game and defense, and neither one of those units really played that great in this game. But with that being said, they had a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter, and they watched it disappear. So here goes another coach again having to deal with not only trying to maintain a lead, uh, everything started to fall apart when they started to lose trust. It's it's unfortunate because San Francisco's been basically selling that they're getting rid of Jimmy Garoppolo. I don't think it's fair because the way that they started the season, uh, the first four weeks was the window that they were working with, and uh, he did exceptional enough to get Debo to have 14, 1,400 yards, excuse me, receiving, and uh, they just were they weren't really behind them. And for them to be up against a quality defense up against the Los Angeles Rams in Los Angeles, where your fans came down there to support you, you got to be able to give him more. And Garoppolo kind of threw it away in the latter part of that game. But it, it's tough that these coaches are running away from stuff that works. I mean, if, it, if it's not broken, don't fix it. But Shanahan continues to do this. Right when the lights are on, Shanahan, Shanahan keeps blowing this thing up, whether it's in Atlanta, whether it's against Kansas City in the Super Bowl, and now against the Rams in the NFC Championship game. He's face leads, lost them because it's something that he could have done. Putting it on the likes of Garoppolo when it shouldn't just be on the, on the player, it should be on the coach. It's like he's avoiding a lot of scrutiny, and it's not fair. Yeah, Ty, I know one place he didn't escape the criticism, and that's on Twitter. Man, he was getting beat up after this game, and I think it's rightfully so. And it, look, th I'm a guy who's defended Kyle Shanahan for the most part. I think for the most part, this is a very good coach. I think he's a very good play caller, but you are 100% accurate that we are now seeing a trend that he tends to get tight and overthink situational football late in big games. And you alluded to those three games now. We've got to put this on Shanahan. I'm I'm putting the blame more on Shanahan than I am Garoppolo because the play calling really failed Garoppolo. They went away from the run. They went away from Debo. Debo didn't touch the ball more than once in the fourth quarter. How does your best player only touch the ball one time in the fourth quarter? We've seen this time and time again where the running game is working. It's Shanahan's bread and butter, and he goes away from it late in these games, and it just doesn't make any sense. And he put Garoppolo in a bad situation. They continually got Garoppolo in second longs, third and longs. Those are tough situations to be in when you've got this pass rush from the Rams coming after you. 
the 2.5 yards per carry for San Francisco in this game was by far their fewest this season. I got to give credits to the Rams for being able to put the cap on the running game for the Niners, but it doesn't mean you give up on it. When I flip it to the other side, the Rams passing strategy was really obvious to me, Ty. It was to get the ball out quick and it worked well, only allowing two sacks in this game. They respected the pass rush by the 49ers, Nick Bosa, Eric Armstead and those guys up front, they knew that they weren't going to be able to take deep drops and throw deep balls. They had to get the ball out quick. I thought it was a smart strategy by Sean McVay. The Rams really just won the battle on third down. When you look at this game, we know how important third down is. The Rams were 11 for 18 on third down, and they held the 49ers offense to three of nine. For me, that's the stat that really jumps out in this game. You talked about Jimmy Garoppolo. I think he played a pretty good game through three quarters, going 13 for 21 with two touchdowns, but he went three for nine in the fourth quarter with that game ceiling interception. I don't, like I said, I don't really want to put that all on him. It was a bad play. I get that, but he was under pressure almost the entire fourth quarter. And I put it on Shanahan because he just didn't run the ball in the fourth quarter and he didn't give it to Debo. You're right, Ty. This is a guy who continues to blow leads in the fourth quarter of big games. And it's a reputation that is now going to haunt Kyle Shanahan until he proves otherwise in one of these big games. When I look at what Matt Stafford did in this game, he was okay. I don't think he was great. I thought he had a good game. Two touchdowns, one picks. Really should have had two picks. We know about the second one that got dropped. That was a game-changing play, Ty. I think if that ball gets picked off at midfield, we could be talking about a Bengals 49ers matchup right now. The way that Stafford threw that ball, it was basically a punt. Nobody was there to heckle him or anything. He just closed his eyes to try to catch that pass. If you're scared at a moment, you just cost your team everything, as well as yourself, to try and get a Super Bowl ring this season. Um, I don't know if Kyle Shanahan gets to another Super Bowl. I mean, this is something that was gifted to him to get to another NFC Championship with this team being San Francisco. It might have been a couple of pieces that have changed, but you got back here with the chip on your shoulder while all the odds are against you, especially yourself thinking that Jimmy Garoppolo should have been the quarterback, and he's doing this well. Stafford actually did enough to manage to win the game. He's getting a lot of credit of getting this far. They only scored 20 points. He's still up to those situations where he's not putting a lot of points on the board. Stafford, to me, is an offensive quarterback. Like, I'm not looking at him to do just enough to get us to win the game. I feel like Stafford could blow a game open. 20 points, that's a reasonable situation for you guys to win the game, and San Francisco couldn't even do that. This is the tough situation that Kyle Shanahan's going to have to recover from. But I'm not letting Shanahan dodge the bullet. And uh, I think Stafford can do more, even though Cooper Cup has been phenomenal, electric. Like, there's so many words that you could put to him. But a lot of defenses don't even recognize the tape that they're watching. When he's in motion and he's in a slot, one of those receivers are going to go underneath for a one-yard out and get you anywhere from two yards to 15 yards. And they're going to settle with what the defense gives them. A lot of defenses just give that up. They're eating people up and making them pay. Yeah, I'll tell you the word that comes to mind, Ty. Unguardable. That's what Cooper Cup has become. Man, this guy has been unbelievable. And he continues to shine in the postseason. And I got to give some props to OBJ. OBJ has really come on big, too. He had a big game. And he also showed a ton of class going up and consoles Debo Samuel after the game. That was a really, really cool moment and a really classy move to Odell Beckham Jr. Hats off to him for that. 
All right, Ty, let's put a bow on Championship Sunday and give out the Championship Sunday game ball. Who gets the game ball for you, Ty? Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow played awesome, especially the way he was able to avoid pressure in situations where Chris Jones was after him and him breaking tackles and making plays, whether running for first downs or throwing passes. He was able to get away from the lone threat that the Chiefs had on defense, and he did it in taking care of business on the road and dangerous arrowhead. And in the NFC championship game, um, I can't look any further than Cooper Cup. Uh, Cooper Cup was annihilating them. Just like you said, he was unguardable. Uh, there was too many different situations where he was basically taking the ball and doing what he wanted to, including a touchdown early in the game and then scoring a touchdown later. Uh, Cooper Cup is definitely becoming a name to be reckoned with. You're going to pay if you can't watch out for number 10. Yeah, Cooper Cup, man, unbelievable game. 142 yards and two touchdowns with 11 receptions. He was a big-time difference maker. Ty, my game ball is going to go to the Cincinnati defense. This defense showed up in a big-time way against a big-time offensive opponent. Four sacks, two tackles for a loss, two interceptions, and only gave up three points after halftime, not to mention that huge near the goal line stop right before the half that we spoke about earlier. That was a big-time momentum play and a huge stop on Tyreek Hill that kept points off the board and kept Cincinnati in that ball game. So the Cincinnati's defense gets the game ball for me. Ty, we've got the Super Bowl coming up. We're going to dive into that here in just a minute. But this week, we've got the Pro Bowl. It got me thinking about Pro Bowl snubs. It seems like every year, people are talking about guys who should have been Pro Bowlers. And it got me wondering, okay, who are some of the guys that I think should have made the Pro Bowl that didn't? I got a couple names here, Ty, and I'll get your thoughts. One that stands out to me is Cordero Patterson for the Atlanta Falcons. This is a guy similar to Debo Samuel, just a switch. Swiss Army knife of a player. He's got the fifth highest combined yards in the league between rushing, receiving, and returning yards. I don't know how that doesn't get you a Pro Bowl nod. I think the one thing that hurt Patterson was that the, he played for the Atlanta Falcons. The Atlanta Falcons struggled all season long to find themselves, but he, just as dangerous as Debo Samuel was, they were dual threats in the backfield and in the passing game. I think he should have deserved the same credit as what Debo did, but it's an unfortunate snub, to tell you the truth. Yeah, it definitely is, Ty. Another guy that makes my list is Roquan Smith, the linebacker for the Bears. This is a guy that we talked about in the offseason when we did the Bears preview, a guy that we expected to have a big year, and I think he had a career season. 81 tackles, three sacks, one interception, and a defensive touchdown. He was great in coverage, picking up guys out of the backfield, wide receivers, and putting pressure on the quarterback at a really high rate. He had better stats than some of the other linebackers that made the Pro Bowl, so I think he was a guy that didn't get enough credit. And my last Pro Bowl snub tie is Austin Eckler, the running back for the LA Chargers. 20 total touchdowns tied for first in the NFL out of all the AFC running backs to make the Pro Bowl. Only Jonathan Taylor had more yards from scrimmage than Eckler. When you just say those two stats out loud, it is ridiculous that Austin Eckler did not make the Pro Bowl. Yeah, it's an unfortunate situation for Eckler. I don't know if they're looking at him just being knocked out of games or something like that, but uh, incredible season that he had out there in L.A., the Chargers let a, lot of, let a lot of games slip by, and I think that they were looking at that in the manner of games that they should have won. 
that he probably should have been more involved in. But other than that, um, that's another questionable head scratcher, especially the same thing for Roquan out of Chicago. Um, I think they just felt like more players were on the field longer or better at the time or the scrutiny that the Chicago Bears are going to face until they finally turn things around in Illinois. Ty, it's a great point. And I think sometimes we look at team success way too much and we don't look at the individuals. There can be great players on bad teams that are having career years that sometimes do tend to get overlooked because their team isn't performing at a high level. So I think that's a great point by you. Pint Glass Football Podcast is presented by Better Edge. Bringing the edge back to the betters with no fee sports betting. At BetterEdge.com, you, not the books, set the price of betting lines so you can make bank. Better Edge is available in 45 states for real money sports betting. Play the game without getting played at BetterEdge.com. The Super Bowl is around the corner. We're going to jump into it from all angles, but I want to start here, Ty. We know the Super Bowl is more than just the game. It's about the food, the party, the getting together with friends and family. What is a go-to food for you, Ty? What's a food that you got to have at the Super Bowl? Super Bowl steak, ribs, and a pasta. So that has to be there. Like, my brother likes to get the crab legs, too. So we, we go crazy Super Bowl. So it's more or less an eating show than the football game. So that is the truth. So steak, ribs, a pasta, and crab legs. And by the second quarter, everybody's dizzy. Man, crab legs. I haven't even thought about crab legs for the Super Bowl. That is a great choice, man steak and pasta man you guys do it big i think one of the one seeds so to speak for me is pizza i feel like you got to have a good pizza on super bowl can be tough to get sometimes with delivery it's a little crazy sometimes you got to get that order in a little early i think wings you know i think wings are something that like you almost have to have at a super bowl party Ty. barbecue hot what's the flavor you go with for wings Brad, this is this is terrible that people have to see this or hear this rather that you're thinking about pizza and wings on Super Bowl Sunday. People eat wings and pizza almost every football Sunday, and you're gonna do it again on a Super Bowl. This, this is shame on you. This is terrible. You 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 have to broaden your horizon somehow, somewhere. You have to get out of that box. <laughs> of course, it's gonna be a hot buffalo. Or maybe a barbecue, but that's not on Super Bowl. Like, if you want somebody to bring those wings, okay, come on. They, those will be the hors d'oeuvres or something. Like, the kids could snack on those. But, but like, come on. You've done that every Sunday. Every Sunday. When it when the lights are on, you're going to put wings and pizza and say, that's it? Ta -ta 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 -ta. No, no, that's not happening. <laughs> Ty, what were those wings we had when we were in Vegas? The ones that we really liked? What flavor was the, were those? I'm trying to think of which restaurant we were at. Oh, oh the restaurant inside the casino. I forget the flavor. We had like four of them. I think we had a lemon pepper, a buffalo, and I forget there was another flavor. Lemon pepper. That's what it was, Ty. Yeah, those lemon pepper wings. Man, those were pretty good. I'm going to have to pick some of those up. But apparently, man, you, you're outshining me here with the steak and the crab legs. I'm doing it small over here, Ty. What about like chips and dips, nachos, anything like that? This is a dinner. You're eating dinner when you watch it. It's okay. On the East Coast, it's 6 p.m. Where you are, it's 3 p.m. Whether you're going to eat wings and then eat a dinner after the game, which is going to be 9 o'clock your time, no, you're, you got to settle on in. And this is basically a holiday. Like, they need to consider the Super Bowl to be a holiday and giving everyone that Monday off to recover because the game on the East Coast it ends at 11. Like, and knowing people are going to drink and do things like that, you're thinking about pizza and wings for all 18 weeks 
and the three or four weeks of the playoffs, the playoffs, and then the Super Bowl. This is outlandish. I've never heard of this. People, if you're near the West Coast anywhere, please help my brother out because I do not like that he's going through this. PGF, send him some seafood tickets or steak or Omaha steaks, whatever you need to, so that he can <laughs> gas up the grill and go to war. I, I'm, I'm tired. Man, Ty, beating me down here. I, I thought I had a pretty good list here, but you're putting my list to shame here, Ty. What about sub sandwiches? You know, the big party subs. You guys ever do that? And you you are right about this, Ty. It's definitely different on the West Coast because you're talking like the ha- or the uh, pregame show and all that stuff. That stuff's going on at like 2. So we start getting all the food and everything ready. It's definitely more of a lunch feel on the West coast, but I, I got to factor that in. Cause you're right. It's definitely a lot later for you guys out there on the East coast. I think for me, one of my favorites is the sub sandwiches. I, we always do a lot of chips and dips, maybe some bean and cheese, some clam dip, you know, a ranch dip, something like that. I might fire up the barbecue this year. I like what you're saying there, Ty, the barbecue is something that I don't think I've utilized enough during the Super Bowl because I'm always afraid it's taking me away from the TV. You know, I got to get up. I got to check on the food. So I, I haven't been like prone to fire up the barbecue during the game, but I'm thinking I might have to do it this year. What about an X factor? What's the X factor food for the Super Bowl? Okay. To answer your sub situation, you can get an all American with the turkey roast beef or ham. And also a place around my way, they'll do the three foot or six foot steak and cheese or the the chicken parm. So either or will work for a crew. They just keep slicing it as they go. Chip and dip. I like the Lipton or onion dip with the regular uh, ruffle plain. Um, a go-to is one of my family favorites. Uh, my mom actually helps us out with a taco salad. Her taco salad is phenomenal. And one of my friends, longtime friend, they own a restaurant out here. They make a seven layer tortilla chip dip. And the chili is all steak meat, so it's crazy. Oh, man. Oh, man. I'll tell you what, Ty. I got to be doing Super Bowl Sunday at the Powell Residence. My goodness, you guys do it up big. I love what I'm hearing, Ty. I'll tell you my snack food X factor, peanut M&M's. You got to have a <laughs> bowl of the peanut M&M's oh my God. on the table. I'm telling you, they're the, they're the Debo Samuel of the Super Bowl party, man, because – when you've got all this other food, you got all this like, you know, hearty foods, sometimes, you know, in between the food, you just kind of need a sweet, nice, crunchy snack. Nothing better than a bowl of peanut M&Ms. That's my X factor. But of course, you got to have the beers and the sodas. I know you're a Stella Artois kind of guy. I know that's what you were drinking when we were in Vegas. For me, I've got to have one of the cold McKenzie brewing beers, of course, on deck. Maybe some cold sodas for a little bit later. But, man, love it, Ty. I'll tell you what, we're going to have to do a Super Bowl together one of these days, man, because you are doing it big out there in Connecticut, and I love what I'm hearing. Before we get to the game, Ty, I want to talk. We're talking the whole thing here. We're doing the whole thing. We're talking food. And now I want to talk about this Super Bowl halftime show. I want to get your take on this, Ty, because there's a lot of people that tune into the halftime show that are almost more hyped about it than the game. And for the first time, maybe ever, I might be just as excited for the halftime show as I am the football. Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, Mary J. Blige, and Kendrick Lamar are performing. What do you make of this halftime show? 
I think we're in for a treat. Um, Los Angeles is definitely taking over. Uh, this is Dr. Dre and Snoop's reign, and also the young guy and Kendrick Lamar adding in a little bit of New York with Mary J coming in there and Eminem being a Michigan guy, uh, kind of a follow, follow behind of what Matthew Stafford is or where he came from. So I wonder if Eminem will come out in a lion jersey or something. That might be crazy in itself. But um, just to see hip-hop kind of bounce back and knowing that Jay-Z's actually been a lot or have a hand in a lot of these halftime situations since he's gotten to the scene of the NFL, it could be pretty interesting to see on what songs they come out with. I've been actually told that there's a special guest just because I get the inside. A lot of people don't get what I get. Just stay tuned to the special guest that should be popping off halftime event. Um, it should be pretty electric, but the name that they have on slate is my lineup because I like R&B. I like hip hop. So I'm, I'm excited for it, man. I'm totally with you. This is a great lineup of guys. Dr. Dre said, quote, the fact that the NFL is allowing hip hop to come into this game I'm so honored and so inspired to come in and do this show. I think this really means a lot to these guys. This is one of the biggest stages, maybe the biggest stage for any artist to perform at with millions and millions of viewers, not only here in the United States, but around the world. They're going to be watching this game. It's a big moment for these artists. And it's an all-star lineup, no doubt about it. These five artists have combined for 43 Grammys in 22 number one billboard albums you're totally right about the west coast vibe i like that they integrated that into the la sofi stadium that's going to be happening here on super bowl sunday it's really that homecoming vibe for dre snoop and lamar like you touched on all being la guys so it's going to be a lot of fun man before we jump into this super bowl i gotta get your take on the best Super Bowl of all time. Every Super Bowl, it gets you kind of thinking about the past. We love to look back and think about all the great Super Bowls over the years. There's been so many good ones. What Super Bowl really stands out to you in your memory, Ty? Maybe two or three, but what are some of the Super Bowls you think are right up there as some of the best Super Bowls that we've ever seen? Um, He just retired. Actually, within this week here, there's a story of a guy named Brady, two of them by him that I can never forget. I mean, and I could really do three with the losing situation. Well, I'll do the losing situation first, but I don't want to be too negative on his week. So the 18-1 and one situation, everybody and their mother, including myself, I thought that they were going to go 19-0. and 0. There was nothing I could have thought the Giants could have done, especially they played them three weeks previous, uh, putting up 38 points in the middle of Giants Stadium, and then coming out and scoring, I think, 14-17 to 17 was the final score. Um, and getting slowed down in that manner. That's the losing one, and it was a nail-biter, including the second-to-last play of the game where Brady rolls right, and they're at the 20, and he throws a bomb, and you know who it's only going to. It's going to Randy, and Randy's about a yard away from the ball. If people watch the replay, Webster and them jump on him before that ball gets there. They, they jump on him. It's pass interference. The refs don't call it. They do not call the call at all. They're just like, just, we're just going to let the game he play. But if you look at the play again, Randy is jumped on before the ball gets there because they, they were not going to lose the game watching Moss get them in the final quarter where the defensive line did everything they could to get Randy out of the game because they were just sacking Brady left and right. So the, the next two, I don't know which one is better, but they all are nail-biting situations and come down to the end, but I'm going to do the best that I can. The 1B is against the Seattle Seahawks, and the Seahawks are at the six-inch line. 
and Marshawn has well over 100 yards rushing, if he scores this touchdown, he would have been the Super Bowl MVP. Pete Carroll calls a passing play. They run a crossing route at the line of scrimmage. It gets picked off by Malcolm Butler. The success goes in favor of the New England Patriots, and Russell Wilson has still not answered the bell on getting back to a Super Bowl ever since that catastrophic play calling where Pete Carroll tried to be the smartest guy in the room. And 1A, I can never forget it, the only overtime I've ever seen in a Super Bowl where the Patriots faced a 28-3 deficit late in the second half, come back, tie the game to go to overtime, get the ball, and score a touchdown with nothing left for Atlanta to do but watch them celebrate on that field. That has to be the most gut-punching, chaotic feeling I could ever think of in my life. I I like those nail-biters where you don't know what's going to happen, especially where Brady was throwing pick sixes. He started to look older in this point in time, and he did everything that he can to not only turn this thing around but win another Super Bowl. I got to give him his credit. I love that list, Ty. One of those games is also on my list. Super Bowl 49, Patriots-Seahawks. Unbelievable game, unbelievable finish that came down to the wire, like you said. Malcolm Butler picking off Russell Wilson at the goal line. Maybe the best defensive play in Super Bowl history. Absolutely incredible. It's one of those super memorable plays that people will remember for a lifetime. I love your list. I considered all of them when I was putting my list together. Another game that I think stands out to me is the comeback. The Patriots come back against the Falcons. Everyone talks about the collapse, but I look at it another way. The Patriots came back from it being 28-3 in that game. One of the most incredible comebacks of all time. Just unbelievable what Brady and those guys did. Never giving up, taking it to overtime and getting the huge win. Super Bowl 43 is another Super Bowl that comes to mind as one of the greatest ever. Steelers, Cardinals, Larry Fitzgerald scores a touchdown with two minutes and 37 seconds left. Ben Roethlisberger leads a game-winning drive with a corner touchdown throw to Santonio Holmes in triple coverage. Toe taps on the sideline, one of the greatest throws, one of the greatest catches, one of the greatest drives in Super Bowl history, an absolutely thriller of a Super Bowl. But I think my number one tie is Super Bowl 34, Rams-Titans, the tackle. When you say the tackle and you know this game, everybody knows the final play of the game was by linebacker Mike Jones stopping Titans wide receiver Kevin Dyson just shy of the goal line as he's reaching out and comes up just short of what would have been a game-winning touchdown in the final seconds. One of the greatest Super Bowls ever, but it's so fun because there's been so many good ones. I love your mention of Super Bowl 42 Patriots getting upset when they were undefeated by the Giants and Eli's big comeback at the end. That was an exciting Super Bowl. You had the, the Tyree helmet catch and Plaxico in the corner of the end zone. It was definitely one of the great ones of all time. One of the greatest low-scoring Super Bowls actually of all time that game was highly entertaining especially considering how low scoring it was but awesome and tons of fun to talk about all the great Super Bowls and I really hope Ty that we are in for another classic on Super Bowl Sunday February 13th 3 30 p.m pacific time 6 30 p.m eastern standard time it's the first time ever that neither conference has a top three seed. We've got two four seeds 
playing each other. The four seed Rams and the four seed Bengals. It's the third Super Bowl appearance for the Bengals, and it's their first appearance since 1988. They're 0 and 2 in their prior Super Bowl appearances. It's the fifth Super Bowl appearance for the Rams in their first since 2018. They are 1 and 4 in Super Bowls. Right now, the Rams opened as a three and a half point favorite, the over under at 50. The line's been moving a little bit. Ty, what are your initial thoughts on this matchup? It's the expect the unexpected. Uh, I don't know what to expect out of either of these teams. Uh, both of them have quarterbacks that have gotten sharp at this point in time of the uh, season. And the defenses are actually both standing up to a questionable situation where you think the offense could actually overpower them and their defenses are doing their job to keep their offense upright. So this is a very big questionable situation. I don't even know how to pick this because both of these teams have been playing well. I, I can't overplay it. Well, somebody has to win. It, it is going to be a, a fascinating matchup. The Bengals really feel like the Cinderella team that arrived at the party a year or two early. I don't think anybody saw this this coming. Even the most passionate Bengals fans, the most optimistic Bengals fans, had to be shocked by their Cinderella ride here to the Super Bowl. They were picked by most people in the media before the season's, season started to finish dead last in the AFC North. They win the North, get into the playoffs, and make this incredible run. While when you look at the Rams, this is a team that went all in to get to this game. They traded two first-round picks and Jared Goff for Matt Stafford. Then they made in-season moves to acquire Vaughn Miller and Odo Beckham Jr. Those aggressive moves have really paid off. Now can they cash it in is the big question. Or One of the key matchups in this game to start with, Ty, is the coaching matchup. Sean McVay versus Zach Taylor. McVay is 61-29 and 29 as a head coach. He's 6-3 and three in the playoffs, including a Super Bowl appearance in 2018. Zach Taylor is 19-32-1 as a head coach, and he's 3-0 and in the playoffs. Obviously, all three of those wins were this year. But what's interesting about this matchup, Ty, is that Zach Taylor was an assistant for Sean McVay in 2017, and he was the quarterback coach in 2018 for Sean, Mc, Sean McVay as well. Zach Taylor is familiar with this Rams roster for the most part, but McVay is really familiar with Zach Taylor's coaching style and tendencies since he was really learning under McVay at that point. Who has the edge in that matchup? McVay by far. McVay's already been to a Super Bowl. Well, he knows what it takes. He lost to the evil genius himself and Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. Here's a situation where I feel like his experience should help trump this situation up against Cincinnati if we're looking at coaching. I give the edge to McVay. Ty, I'm with you. I'm totally with you. I think the edge goes to McVay. I don't want to take any credit away from Zach Taylor. I think he's done an outstanding job, and I don't think he's getting enough credit for how well he's coached, especially down the stretch and in these playoffs. He's got this team playing at a high level, so I want to give him his props. But you're right. I think the experience plays a big factor, and I think McVay has the edge there, certainly. The big matchup that everyone is going to be talking about leading into this Super Bowl is the Bengals offensive line versus the Rams defensive line. The Bengals offensive line has given up 13 sacks in the three playoff games combined, and they now face three-time defensive player of the year, Aaron Donald, and edge rusher Von Miller and company. There's no way around it. This is a huge mismatch on paper that favors the Rams. Now, the Rams, they often split Miller and Donald 
so that you can't slide protection. It makes it so hard to keep these guys off the quarterback. I think this could be one of the biggest mismatches, if not the biggest mismatch in this game. Bengals offensive line has their hands full. Uh, just the way that the Rams defensive line took control of the, uh, the 49ers game at the end of the game in that final drive where they basically applied pressure is the same recipe that Spagnolo uh, and the Giants did up against Brady in 07, where they weren't they weren't letting Brady get set back there and letting them pick him apart with at least letting Randy Moss get started, even though Wes Walker had like 15 catches in the game. It's like we'll deal with Wes, but we won't watch Randy chunk the field up or score touchdowns. Um, and I think that's the same situation that they're going to have to deal with and trying to not let Chase get out there and get started. They're going to have to take what the defense gives them. And um, I think this defensive line is uh, another check on the board. Yeah, you're right. When you look at it from just a statistical standpoint, the Rams have the number one pass rush win rate in the NFL this year. And the Cincinnati Bengals have the 30th ranked pass block win rate. So this is a big Big time mismatch as far as that goes. And it's something that we're going to have to pay attention to early in this game. We're going to have to see if they can make an impact early in this game and get pressure on Burrow from the jump, or if it's something that maybe they're going to bring in some tight ends. Maybe you bring in some running backs to stay in the backfield to help protect Burrow, go with some max protect looks. I think the Bengals are going to have to get creative here because they're at a big disadvantage. Now, you touched on Jamar Chase, and this is a matchup that I can't wait to dive into. Jamar Chase, who's had an incredible rookie year, going up against Jalen Ramsey. Ramsey is one of the best cornerbacks in the NFL. According to Pro Football Reference, Ramsey was targeted 98 times, allowing 58 receptions, which is a 59% rate and 6.4 yards per target. He's a three-time All-Pro, including the last two seasons. Now, he did have some trouble against Mike Evans in the Tampa Bay Divisional Round matchup. Mike Evans did get the best of him in that game, but Jamar Chase is not as big as Mike Evans. He's definitely got a shorter frame than a guy like Mike Evans, but he's more explosive. What do you see in this matchup, Ty? I think all of the pressure is on Chase at this point. Everybody's seen what he's been able to do to the league all this way throughout the season. Jalen Ramsey has made a name for himself out of Florida State up until this point, just falling short year after year. Both of these guys have to kind of answer the bell at this point in time. It's a lot of pressure on Chase, though, because he's a rookie at this point in time. I think the Rams have to try and slow the situation as best as possible. Chase is the go-to guy for Burrow. If they slow him down, I feel like it's an uphill battle. Yeah, you look at Jamar Chase, he's had one of the best rookie seasons by a wide receiver, really in NFL history. He's had a historically good rookie season. This is a key matchup in this game. And the question becomes, do they leave Ramsey on an island or are they going to roll a safety to his side, maybe play some bracket coverage? Do they trust Ramsey to cover Chase one-on-one? I think to start the game, they're going to. That's my prediction here. I think they're going to open this game up and let Ramsey go on Chase one-on-one and see what happens. If Burrow and Chase start connecting and they start getting the best of Ramsey, then I expect the Rams to maybe shift their coverage and change what they do. But I think initially they're going to try to play him one-on-one and leave defenders free to guard other guys. But the question then becomes, who covers Higgins and Boyd? If Burrow has time to get to his second and third reads, 
which is a big question mark. So we talked about that D-line and the pressure that he could be under in this game. But if he can get to those second and third reads, those guys could also be big in this matchup. We saw the Chiefs trying to take away Chase. They were basically doubling him on every play in that AFC Championship game. And Higgins stepped up and had a really nice game. It'll be interesting to see how the Rams attack that matchup. All right, Ty, I want to jump to the running backs because this is a matchup that I think is interesting. Which team has the edge at running back? Cam Akers and the Rams or Joe Mixon and the Bengals? I think uh, Mixon and the Bengals have the edge. I think they run the ball better. Uh, However, Akers is able to take advantage because that passing game is so dynamic that he may get better chunks of yardage if they're paying attention to the receiving game. So, I think the game is better on Cincinnati, but I think for which team will have the better day will be the Rams because of the passing threat that Odell and Cooper Cup provide toward the game. I'm with you, Ty. I like Cam Akers. I think he's a really solid player, but I'm going to give the edge to Joe Mixon too. I think the team that can run the ball the best in this game is going to go a long way in determining the winner. I'll give the edge to Joe Mixon. He's had over 100 total yards in each of the last two games. He's a threat to catch it out of the backfield. He's a very complete player. I think if he has a big game, it could really, really help these Bengals if they're going to pull the upset. We touched on Jamar Chase and that matchup with Ramsey, but I want to look at the group of wide receivers. Which team is better at the wide receiver position as a whole? Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, and Tyler Boyd, or Cooper Cup, Odell Beckham Jr., and Van Jefferson? The Rams and Odell is now with a point to prove on the biggest stage ever, and this guy likes to get crafty in his you know, touchdown celebration, so on and so forth. Uh, it's about time. A lot of stuff that's going on against Odell especially what he's dealt with in New York, going through the savage situation in Cleveland with him, Baker, in that organization, and now him being the problem out there. He leaves. Cleveland starts to fall apart. He's in L.A., and now he's in a Super Bowl. Yeah, this is this is Odell's time, I think, especially with the receiver core that he's around. And Van Jefferson made a name for himself as well. So I think that trio is more damaging, if you will, than Chase Boyd and Higgins. Ty, I'm with you. I agree with you on this one as well. I'm going to give the edge to the Rams, and that's no disrespect to Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, and Boyd. I think they're a really nice trio. They're an explosive trio in their own right. But we know Cooper Cup had a historic season, one of the greatest seasons for a wide receiver in NFL history, and he hasn't slowed down at all in the playoffs. He continues to put up monster numbers. Odell Beckham Jr., we talked a little bit about him. He had 113 yards in the NFC Championship game. He was a big-time factor, and he has 236 yards receiving in the playoffs so far. So he's really emerged and really fit nicely into this offense and given them a big-time second option. I also think Van Jefferson is a nice third receiver for them. So, yeah, I'm going to give the edge to the Rams. Not by a ton. I think the Bengals have a really nice group, but I definitely think the Rams get the edge at receiver as well there. But, of course, we've got to look at the biggest matchup, and that's at quarterback. Which team has the edge at quarterback, Ty? If you look at just the numbers here, as far as the playoffs, I don't want to go all the way into the regular season and all that. Just kind of looking at what they've done recently here, Joe Burrow is averaging 280 yards a game, 1.3 touchdowns per game. He's had two picks. 
Matt Stafford is averaging 301 yards per game and two touchdowns per game and one pick. Let's face it, should be two. Who has the edge in the quarterback matchup, Ty? The home team. (laughs) And not saying Cincinnati because I think they are the home team in this game. I'm talking about the Los Angeles Rams playing in their stadium where they know every corner being Matt Stafford. And everything happens in Hollywood for a reason. I think with the way that he's been able to play in this playoff stretch, uh, putting these games together and not losing, it's been one thing that's been able to work wonderful for him. But why not? Everything's been going up against him since he's been in Michigan now up until this point. I don't think he could face any more pressure than what he's up to right now uh, to kind of clear all the air for what he's gone through in years past up until now. I, I think this actually favors Stafford to go up against a defense that they really have their issues trying to figure out the remainder of the offense. Ty, I went back and forth on this. When I was looking at the quarterbacks, I've had a really hard time deciding which one I thought had the edge. I think the Bengals, when you look at this team and the way they're playing with Burrow right now, they just have this never-say-die attitude. It feels like the Rams on the other side almost gave away wins in the last two weeks. I know the numbers, when we look at those, they say Stafford should have the edge in this matchup. He's statistically playing a little bit better than Burrow, but Burrow has something that doesn't show up on the stat sheet, and that's that it factor. There is just something about this guy. There's a confidence, a swagger. There's something about his game that you can't quite measure. It makes him a scary matchup for these Rams. Stafford feels a little more turnover-prone this year, and that makes me a little nervous in this matchup. He had some stretches there in the regular season, And we've seen some throws in the postseason that were really errant. It just looks like he's almost just giving the ball away at times with some really bonehead mistakes that you shouldn't see from a veteran quarterback. Like I said, statistically, I kind of lean Stafford here, but something in my gut is telling me, Burrow, I think one big X factor that people aren't talking about as far as the quarterbacks is Burrow's ability to move the sticks with his legs. Not that Stafford doesn't ever do that. We saw him do that recently But Burrow's ability to run and create plays with his legs is a really understated part of his game. I think combine that with the it factor that I talked about, I'm going to give the slight edge to Joe Burrow. Ty, we've broke down the game. We've looked at some of the matchups. We've looked at this game in depth here. It's time to make our picks. Who's your Super Bowl pick to win the game? Uh, back-to-back seasons of the home team being at home. The first time we seen it last year was with Brady with Tampa Bay being at Tampa. I think it revisits itself with Matt Stafford being in Los Angeles at SoFi with the Rams. I think the Rams get it done and take the you know pressure off of the back of not only Matthew Stafford, not only McVay, but also the guy that won't get enough praise in this game, and that's Odell Beckham. Uh, if Odell Beckham doesn't come save this Rams team, while Woods goes down, they wouldn't be here. Odell Beckham deserves more of the story as well, too. So I'm going with the Rams. Ty, I'm with you. I'm going with the Rams to win this game. I think from a talent standpoint, they just have – we talked about the edges that they have in this game. I think they check just a few more boxes as far as some of the matchups. I think they've got the more talented roster. I think they've got the coaching edge, and I think they got the experience edge as well. So – I'm going to go with the Rams to win this game. What about a betting pick, though? Opened at Rams, three-and-a-half-point favorites. Most books, it looks like it's moved 
to four and a half. According to Better Edge right now, it's four and a half. Who do you like from a betting standpoint? Um, if you're chasing, I would probably still go with the Rams, but I wouldn't chase just because they want you to. I'd money line it out uh, with the Rams and go get them and put everything on them. They're, they're at home, and the momentum's on their side, even though Cincinnati's been doing damage on the AFC side of the ball. But I'm not thoroughly impressed on what happened on the AFC runs up to this point. I am impressed with however the Rams have gotten here, and I feel like their whole unit can get it done. I'm going Rams money line, if anything. I wouldn't chase the, the points for any means. Yeah, Ty, I don't think that's a bad pick at all because, like you, like we just said, we both have the Rams winning this game, and I think the money line is probably the smart play there in a lot of ways. I think for a betting pick for me, though, I do think there's value at plus four and a half. That's a lot of points for a Super Bowl. It's a lot of points for two teams that are both really talented, two teams that can really put up a lot of points. So I think the value for me, the fact that I'm getting well over that field goal mark, that three points is really the key. Once you get above a field goal, I think there's a lot of value as far as a matchup like this. So for me, the betting pick would, I think is going to be Bengals plus four and a half. I expect this to be a close game. And anytime it's a close game, like I said, I'm, I'm going to lean towards getting those points, but I do like the Rams to win this game. The over under right now at most books is under 50 at better edge right now. It's 49 and a half is the over under. What do you like as far as that? I think it's a threat. I think it's a threat to be over. Um, it's Hollywood. So just expect those like to be out and Burrow's actually been playing good ball too. I don't, I don't think the defense is going to be playing as stellar as people want even though I think the front seven kids caught trouble, but I, I feel like Burrow would actually make a couple of throws to actually get some scores on the board. But if he doesn't, this could be an extreme blowout. And this is why I'm telling you, stay away from those points because this the last couple of games you've seen, you've seen a 31-9 game up against Tampa, up against Kansas City, and you also seen Kansas City come back and storm San Francisco and win by a, a possession or more. I, I could care less if it's three and a half or four and a half. This, this could be a shootout. So I think the uh, over is in effect. Yeah, that's interesting, Ty. I could certainly see it being a shootout because we've got two good offenses. We've got two high-level quarterbacks. We've talked about the wide receivers and some of these explosive playmakers. I think it could be a shootout, but I'm going to lean more on history here. And when you look at Super Bowls, they tend to be more lower scoring than we think. A lot of times we get these two offensive teams or two good offensive teams. People expect a fireworks show. When the big bright lights come on, it tends to get a little tighter. Plus, you've got defenses that have extra time to prepare. You've got the two weeks leading up to the game. So you've got this extra time to get ready for these offenses. And generally, we tend to see the under hit more often in Super Bowls. So I'm going to go under. Also, I'm going to follow the money here because the over-under has been dropping since it first came out. And usually when the line moves like that, it's because sharp money, professional money is coming in on one side and it's driving that number down. So I'm going to I'm going to follow that trend and take the under. I wouldn't be surprised though Ty if it went over because like you said, we've got some big time playmakers. Last prediction here Ty, who's going to win the Super Bowl MVP? I, I got to go with Matthew Stafford. I don't think anybody else could get it unless Cooper Cup does damage to the secondary and have the year that he's having. I understand that, but Matthew Stafford's been a, been through a lot and the storyline is following him. Uh the pickoffs and the pick sixes that he's thrown all season long. Uh, he's close to 20 in a regular season. This will probably be something that he could probably shed a tear to all that he's gone through, um, watching his, his wife go through 
uh, brain cancer surgery, um, but he's been through a ton in his career. I think at this point in time, he has to kind of take the gloves off and go crazy. So I I think this is Stafford's time to uh, not only reel in a Lombardi, but get his light in the sun. Yeah, Ty, it looks like from everything I've seen, he's the favorite right now in Vegas to be the Super Bowl MVP. So I think that's a really smart pick by you. I'm going to go with Cooper Cup, though. This is a guy that even when Stafford's had some subpar games, it seems like Cup still puts up big numbers because he's his go-to guy. I don't know if the Bengals have somebody that can slow this guy down. I think they're really really going to struggle with him. It could be one of those situations where the Bengals just decide to double him and roll coverage to his side, put two guys on him and try to completely take him away. That'll be fascinating to watch. If that's the case, maybe an X factor MVP could be a guy like Odell Beckham Jr. I could see him getting a lot of open looks and a lot of space to create in the open field if they have to roll coverage to cup, but I'm not sure they will. I think They're going to be too worried about both these guys, and I think it's going to open up Cup to have a big game. I'm going to go with Cooper Cup for my MVP, but usually it is the quarterbacks, and that's why Stafford's the favorite right now. I think it's a good pick by you, but that is going to do it, guys, for today's episode. I can't believe it, Ty. We went from April all the way to February. From the draft to the Super Bowl, you guys know how we do it here at PGF. It's been another amazing season. Ty, hats off to you. Incredible year. This is going to be the last episode of season three. As we always do, we end with the Super Bowl episode, and we will be back in April to start breaking down this NFL draft and start getting you guys ready for the next season. So hope you guys enjoy the Super Bowl. Have fun with your friends and family. Have a great time. Live it up and stay tuned. PGF Podcast on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at PGF Podcast. Be sure to follow us on there. We're still going to be posting content on those platforms. And be sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out when we start bringing new episodes when season four launches in April. But that is it, guys. Hope you enjoy the Super Bowl, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the Pint Glass Football Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at PGF Podcast.